The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, church. I want to say a special welcome to all you who are visiting, all of you who are here, who are members, and all of you that are watching and attending online. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you today and forevermore. Well, uh, a little bird told me that we have um, a fairly significant birthday. We do this every once in a while. Not for everybody. Sorry if we missed your birthday or you're welcome if I haven't embarrassed you. But Victor Neal is 79 years old today. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, Victor, happy birthday to you. We're grateful to celebrate not only Victor's uh, birthday, but to celebrate our seniors today as well. It's a huge accomplishment. And it's a huge, significant milestone to graduate and enter the next phase of your life. So the Lord bless you and keep you. We here at the Springs are being transformed into the image of Christ so that people will find their way back to God. And we're doing that in three ways. By gathering together like we do here and in other settings. By growing into the image of Christ and by going in the power of God's Holy Spirit. And this year, we're in the, our theme is grow. And there's no better way to talk about growth and, than being transformed into the image of Christ than following Jesus. Discipleship is one of the ways or the primary way we grow. By following Jesus and by following Jesus, we ourselves are transformed in more into his image. So we're in the Gospel of Mark following Jesus. And our text today is from Mark 9, 30 through 37. The word of the Lord says this. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were going because he was teaching his disciples. So he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise again. But the disciples, they did not understand what he meant they were afraid to ask him about it. Then they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. So sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Then he took a, a little child whom he had placed among them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, uh, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome, and whoever does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Let's pray. Father, as always, we are grateful for your word. It is a regular part of our worship. 
In fact, listening to you and your voice and your word is worship. Now, there's no greater honor we could bestow than to listen to you and take your word seriously. So today, as always, we pray for ears to hear. We pray for hearts to follow. We pray that for lives that will obey. And God, I ask for the gift of preaching. In the name of your word to us, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I was always a pretty good student. But like any student, I would daydream in class. I remember sitting in driver's ed back when I was in high school. You actually took driver's ed as a class. And like I would occasionally do, I started daydreaming while the teacher was talking and instructing us about different things about driving. But then I tuned back in real quickly when I heard him say this. He says, you cannot have an open container in the car while you're, while you're driving. I thought, what? What, is it? what did he just say? So I listened a little bit longer, kind of tuned in, <laughs> duh, to what the teacher was saying, and he said it again. You can't have an open container in the car while you're driving. I thought, that's weird. So I turned around to the, the guy sitting behind me, and I said, what did, what did, what, did he say we can't have an open container in the car? He goes, yeah, yeah, you can't have an open container in the car while you're driving. And I turned around and whispered, man, that stinks. And the guy looked at me like, what kind of party animal are you? And I just sat there bewildered and was like, then I turned around back to him and I said to him, I cannot believe this. You can't even have an open Coke in the car while you're driving. And he said, no, he's not talking about open Coke. He's talking about an open container of alcohol. And I went, oh. <laughs> have you ever been that person in the room that didn't get it? Have you ever been that person in the room that was confused about what was being said? And you assumed all kinds of things, and while they're talking about open containers of alcohol, you're thinking, I can't even have a bottle of water while I'm driving in my car? And they're looking at me like, what are you talking about? How do you not understand what this guy is talking about? If you are ever like me, and you don't get it, if you're ever like me and you don't quite understand what's going on all the time, you make a perfect candidate to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. One of the things that marks the disciples in the gospel of Mark is they don't get it. We've talked a lot about being in chapters or we talked last week about being in chapters 8 through 10. And one of the things that we said previously is that in 1 through 8, through most of 8, one of the things that's a reoccurring thing is that the people follow Jesus like crazy. But they have no clue who he is. 
But over and over again, Jesus encounters demons. And what's ironic about it is that they know exactly who he is. And they go, nope, I'm out. And the temptation is to say, well, of course, Ben, they're demons. Of course, they're out. That's what demons do. They don't follow. Don't misunderstand that. There's a larger question going on here. And the question we should be asking is that what do the demons know? What do they know that the followers of Jesus don't? What do they know that makes them say, mm, I'm out? Then you get to the question of Mark about who do you say that I am? And we said in this series that who you say Jesus is will determine how you follow. I think that's always true. Who you say Jesus is will determine how you follow. So in Mark 8 through 10, there's a cycle. There's three events that happen three times. It's a cycle, right? It's Jesus' passion prediction. He gets a negative reaction, and there's a teaching on discipleship. So we saw that last week where Jesus says, hey, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And then Peter pulls him aside. He says, that's not what kings do. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind, but the things of men. And he takes them aside. He goes, whoever wants to follow me must, must deny themselves and take up their cross. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whatever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. So we get to the second cycle of this passion prediction, negative reaction, and teaching on discipleship. So in verse 30, it says this. It says, Then they left the place and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want them, not anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to him, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant. And they were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them this question. He says, what are you arguing about on the road? And it says, they kept quiet because they had argued about who was the greatest. Jesus once again makes his passion prediction. Remember, passion prediction is this, his suffering statement. He goes, hey, I'm going to be handed over. And they're going to kill me. And what the reaction is of the disciples, I think we can somehow, maybe, maybe relate to a little bit. They don't understand what he's talking about. It doesn't make any sense to them. And so they go on arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Now, there are several things. There's one really important thing they don't understand. But there are a couple of things they do understand which may explain their reaction. Here's the couple of things they do understand. One is that Jesus uses this phrase, Son of Man, which comes from Daniel 7. We mentioned this last week. Daniel 7 talks about the Son of Man is going to come and reestablish God's kingdom and reign with justice and power. So when they hear that phrase, Son of Man, they know what Daniel says. Here's the other thing they understand. And when Jesus starts talking about his resurrection, they know that somehow 
the Messiah is going to come one day and in the end of time, the end of days, at the end of an age, and is going to raise people from the dead and bring about his justice and vanquish all his enemies. So this is what they do understand. And so they begin arguing about who's going to be the greatest when Jesus reigns over everyone, when he defeats those pesky Romans, and he sets up a Jewish colony, a colony ruled by Jewish people all over the known world. Now, from that perspective, they begin arguing over who's going to be the greatest because they're all in his circle. But then Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about? And they know something's off here, as you do. You know something's off here. Because they don't respond, hey, we're arguing about, like, once you set up this colony, who's going to be in charge, who's going to be this. They, they know something's off, and they're embarrassed about that. Kind of like I was embarrassed about the open container. What do, you, what do you mean not open container? How could you not have an open container? So I'd ask my friend, right? And they kept quiet because they were embarrassed. Now, I know what all of you are thinking. How stupid are the disciples? Because all of us understand what Jesus' death means for us. I mean, we sang about it this morning. But I need you to realize something. There's been 2,000 years of Christian history that we've been handed this thing down to where we understand what Jesus' death means. I wonder if we're in the same shoes, would we understand this? In fact, it makes me wonder, really, even though we understand this, what else do we not understand about Jesus? I mean, you can go back to chapter 7, where he talks about all of the evils in the world. All of the evils in your life, they come from the inside and they defile a person. I wonder, do we really understand that? Chapter 8, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he breaks the loaves and the fish and he feeds everyone. And then he tells them about this and he asks them, do you understand and I wonder for us, if we understand what it means to really trust God's provision, I wonder if we really understand that. I, I wonder if I understand that. In chapter 9, he drives out demons. And then at the end, he says, all oh, these demons can only come out by prayer. I wonder, do we really understand how prayer and driving out demons, the power of prayer to drive out demons. Do we really understand that? Do I understand that? If you jump ahead to chapter 10, it says this, how hard is it for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God? 
wonder, what do we not understand? Perhaps, maybe, we also don't understand this. Chapter 9, verse 35, after they have this negative reaction, after they don't understand and they begin arguing, and Jesus says, what are you arguing about? And they're embarrassed and they're, they're, they, they keep quiet. Jesus sits down with them and he calls the 12 and he says this. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last, the servant of all. I wonder if we really don't understand this notion of being a servant. I mean, because when we hear that word, that has a certain good quality to it for us, right? We talk about, have you, I mean, we've talked about servant leadership, right? I mean, even in the secular world, the non-Christian world, you hear this phrase servant leadership. Like this is a quality. Can you have servant leadership? And we value serving one another. And we kind of promote that with our kids and we promote that amongst each other. And that's, that's a really good thing. But I wonder if we don't quite get and understand what Jesus is talking about. Because just like last week when we talked about every disciple, when he hears, take up your cross and follow, every single one of those disciples has walked past probably multiple times someone on the outside of town, naked, hanging on the cross, totally humiliated. They're like, what? Every one of them has encountered servants. And for these disciples of Jesus, maybe what we don't understand that they do is that a servant is someone that has absolutely no rights or privileges. They are always the first one to get up. They're the last one to go to bed. They clean. They do all the dirty work behind the scenes. They cook. They're the last ones to eat. They are at the very bottom of society. Nobody wanted to be a servant. They had to look and go, what? I wonder if we don't understand that. But then he goes on in chapter 9, verse 36 and 37. He uses this example. He takes a very practical example where he pulls a child aside. And he took the child whom he placed among them. And taking the child by his arms, he says to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. We value children. Our society values children. And at the Springs, we value children. It is good and right and appropriate to celebrate you're not children anymore, but to celebrate those who are once our children who have grown up into young adulthood, it is good and right for us to do the kids' corner at the beginning, for, for the kids' Bible classes, to celebrate our children, to care for our children. We value our children, and part of that is it comes out of Jesus' words and understanding what the kingdom's about. It also comes out of this. It's a cultural thing for us. We're a future-oriented society. And in future-oriented societies, you tend to value children. Why? Because the children are the future. The children have more future ahead of them. 
So it stinks being a senior citizen. In other cultures, it doesn't stink being a senior citizen. You're honored. But in our culture, the older you get, the less future you have. Uh, all this... All, all the people, all the people that are, that are senior citizens, like, amen. Like, finally, somebody recognize our pain. <laughs> Victor's like, I'm 79 today. <laughs> I know. Tell me about it. But it's a cultural value, right? Like most advertising is geared towards young people. Why? They don't have any money. Well, one day they will. They're thinking about the future. But I think. When I lived in Uganda, I understood a little bit better maybe what Jesus was saying because Ugandan culture is a little bit more like first century culture. For example, in the language that I had to learn to speak, Lusoga, the word for adult is mukuru. So, Rick, you're a mukuru. You're an adult. The word for a very important person is what? Guess what? Mukuru. So while children have value, you cannot call a child a very important person. This is similar because in Greek and Aramaic, the word for child is shared by another word that is very similar that is for like a servant. If you're a child, you're like a servant. You have no rights. You have no privileges on your own. You have no voice. I wonder what we don't understand. And he says, if you want to be first, you got to be last. The disciples are arguing. They're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. It's this, like this competition for honor and greatness. I don't know about you. I feel this. We live in a really competitive world. In fact, we value competition. It's a high value for us in all kinds of fields, economics and sports and all kinds of things. And it's good because it helps us strive to be better, to do good, to, to, to get better, improve, to grow. That's what's good about competition, I think. And so I think Jesus here is not condemning competition. I think it is human nature to compete on some level. I mean... I'm a competitive guy, and I really, really appreciate sports because I think that is an outlet for appropriate human competitiveness. And hopefully, hopefully, it's ways that we can teach how to be good sports and compete in ways that are mutually edifying. I don't think Jesus here is trying to condemn competition. Instead, he's taking this innate human desire 
and he's reworking it. He's actually flipping it upside down. He takes the human desire and thinking about competition and he turns it on its head. And he says the only way to fulfill the desire for greatness is paradoxically to put yourself last. I'm going to be honest with you. Like I said, I'm a competitive guy. I don't really fully understand that. I'm not saying that because I'm part of my sermon. That feels weird to me if I'm thinking about competition. There's a guy named Gustavo Gutierrez who is a, he's from Peru. He's a pastor. He's old now. But he became quite popular for starting a movement which is kind of swept around the world, especially, especially in developing countries, called liberation theology. You may have heard it before. And Gustavo Gutierrez, what, what he discovered was that in Peru, that the church where he served, it tended, it tended to favor the rich and the powerful. And it tended to kind of ignore the needs of the poor. And so he came up with this phrase that he started working with the poor, those that are poor in honor, those that are poor socially, those that are poor economically, those that are poor in resources, those who are oppressed. He started working with them and he developed this, this notion of liberation theology. And he ends up saying one of his most famous phrases is this, one of my favorite phrases. He says that God has a preferential option for the poor. And because God prefers the poor, his disciples should prefer the poor. And I asked my students in class, I go, what do you think about that? And inevitably somebody raises their hand and says, yeah, but I think, I think God, I think he prefers everyone. Like he loves everyone equally. I was like, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Because God, God does love all of us. You know, God doesn't show favoritism. That's what Scripture says. I was like, right, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. It's true. Scripture says that. Said, but that is not Gutierrez's point. His point is this. He says, if all things are equal, if all things are equal with human beings, human beings' default position is always towards the rich and towards the powerful. His point is that's human nature. He's not saying that this group, God favors this group over the other, but what he's saying is if we leave and we assume that all things are equal, that we're going to end up preferring those that are rich and those that are powerful. Then I asked my students this. I said, let's use an example. Let's say a really important person comes to campus at Oklahoma Christian. In fact, we've had really important people come to campus. We had a former president of the United States, George H.W. Bush. In fact, right outside my office, there's a plaque that's sitting in the ground. 
George H.W. Bush stood here on this day and gave a speech, and I see pictures, and there's people everywhere, and there was fanfare and celebration. We also had the president of Rwanda come and speak. And I asked the question, if a president of a country is coming to Oklahoma Christian, what do you think Oklahoma Christian does in the weeks leading up to that? You can imagine, right? Every, every broken sidewalk gets fixed. Every, every pothole in the parking lot gets filled. All the beds get weeded. All the edges are trimmed. All the grass is cut. Anything that looks broken gets fixed. In fact, if a really important person comes, we roll out the red carpet. And we should. But let me ask you a different question. That's what I ask my students. I go, what do we do if a homeless person shows up on campus? And eyes go down. Somebody slowly raises their hand. I said, yes. I said, we probably call campus security. God has a preferential option for the poor. Because he knows that if all things are equal, he knows what our human nature is. He knows who we roll out the red carpet for. He knows who we cancel, who we call campus security. So I wonder, do we really understand? Tertullian once said this. He said, be ready to receive the lowly, the lowly neighbor as if he was sent by Christ himself. Discipleship grows first by downward lowly movement discipleship grows by lowly downward movement as a tree seeking roots going low so that it could reach high up to the sky this is what Augustine says church, what would it look like for this church to be last? Have you ever thought about that question? Because Jesus says, if you want to be first, you got to be last. What would it look like for a church to be last? That's not how I think. But this is Jesus' call. And his call to you and I is this. What would it mean for you to be a servant? Not just all the ways that we know already, but what do you not understand? What do I not understand? What would it mean for you to be a servant? What would it mean for you to be like a child? Not in all the ways that we understand, but maybe all the ways we don't understand. What would it mean for you to be a child? mean for you and I to be last servants of all for this 
is the call of Jesus. If you don't fully understand it, you're in good company. But this is his question to you and I today. And he says, come. Come and learn what it means to be last. Will you stand as we sing together?